This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Okay, well, we certainly can't. So anyway, is this a Rosalmo on your right and Rosalmo on your left? Well, I mean, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a sandwich. <laughs> we are both swarms of silence. As usual, we've asked uh, Rav Matis Yahu to, uh, to sort the questions with the, uh, uh, the special sorting hat. But it has been voted on, and there's absolutely, I have no choice in any of these. Uh, and I cannot slip in my own because they shut me up. Okay, 13. 13. We live, oh, we live in a, this is, this is, you might guess this is not mine. We live in a world of constant noise and distraction, especially with noise of the mind. How can we quiet the noise of our inner worlds and become sensitive to the soft voice of, our, of the neshama? It's not your question. Is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, first of all, the problem is not a new problem. The Gemara actually describes, the Gemara says the following line. The Gemara says, um, the world would be deafened by the noise of the sun coming out of its window. In other words, the sun coming out, quote-unquote, is very noisy, and it's drowned out by the marketplace of Rome, the noise of the marketplace of Rome. Um, now, it's obviously... I mean, the more trying to say something. The um, the sun coming in the morning is probably the most powerful, um, I guess, visual impression of grandeur and and sort of godliness. God, you know, the brachas in the morning are are all focused on you know the sun coming out and so on. It's and a person, if he was in solitude just with that, person should be overwhelmed by it. But Rome, the noise of Rome is the marketplace of the world, the hub of the world, and it's human activity that sort of drowns it out. And sort of one serves the counter to the other. The, the sound of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the sound of the world counter each other. So if a person were to sort of draw back from the marketplace of Rome, a person would be more sensitive to the things around him. Um, and this has always been, I guess, the challenge. The Muslim movement made its focal point withdrawing from the world. And the classic Musa went as follows. Classic, this means it's, a, it's all of a hundred and fifty, not even that, it was, let's say, in the late 1800s, Rabbi Salaam came up with this. Um, he he said n- next to shuls or yeshivas they would have like these small dark base madrash no one spoke there were only Muslims from there and you spoke to yourself and speaking to yourself you began to really bring out a lot of yourself obviously it takes some direction to do it but, but his point was, even in a base medrash with other people talking and learning, it's great for learning, but to bring out something yourself, you need to have a certain quiet, a certain solitude. And, um, and that was what the Muslim women tried to do, try to get people to make a space for themselves, draw back, and be able to um, start thinking proactively instead of reacting to noise. So I, I don't think the problem is new. In every, every, every time you read something, you read in our modern world, whether, whether it's a 1900, 1800, 1700, but it's the same. Um, the, the, the noise of Rome, a- actually, if you read 
um, historic accounts when the Roman Empire was going, everybody spoke about the incessant clatter of the noise. It, said it, it was a marketplace. It was a noise. And uh, I once had a very fascinating experience with somebody. It, I took a nephew of mine who came for the first time to America. He was in the mid-30s, an Israeli, very thoughtful person. And I told him, you know, I, I grew up in Manhattan. Um, give me the day to show you around Manhattan. It's my favorite thing. So I said, fine. I don't get a cut, but I just uh, do this for L'Shem Shemayim. And we went up to the Empire State Building. I'm showing him, looking around. Then he says to me, don't say anything for a minute now. Listen. And you hear this constant noise. And he says to me, it's not the ocean. It's not the wind. It was a perfectly calm day. He said, it is the sound of 8 million people living. And in Ivrit, there's a word for it, Sha'on HaChayim, Sha'on with an Aleph, the roar of life itself. And I was very taken, like he told me, you know, this is the sound of, of life, of, of, you know, of laughing, crying, running, pushing, turning. It, it's a very, it was a very interesting observation. Just uh, stop, it just reminded me of hearing the wind howling over here. But the, um, but, but the point of drawing back and creating a little island and space for yourself to think definitely is, is, was recognized as being a very important tool for, for bringing out a lot in yourself. Yeah? Uh, the, uh, there's two questions. They could either be viewed as two or one. Why is the penalty for rape in the Torah only a monetary fine? And oh, uh, how can we understand how it is permissible to marry a three-year-old or even a 12-year-old in a world where pedophilia is considered a sickness and the threshold for the crime <coughs> much higher than uh, than those ages, than these ages? Okay, so there, there are two or three um, points to consider when we look at a lot of halal. Um, first of all, um, understanding a difference in ages in other words, people would get, uh, I know people, uh, I had neighbors who had parents who got married at the age of 15, Yoshalmis. And he has a picture of them at the wedding. They look younger than my bar mitzvah pictures. They're, they're 15, 16 year old. And people were mature by that time. People were extremely mature, developed, and, and it was normal. 15, 16 was a norm. You have records in the Chuvas forum. There's a Chuvas Lady Behuda I happen to see again. This is something I wasn't looking for. He has the following story. It's a halachic issue relevant to something else, but. From what year is it really? No, the Behuda was in the 1700s. And this was a story. Somebody took a husband for his daughter before he was bar mitzvah. Um, they lived together in a room, but they weren't ever together physically. Just And he promised him to make him a very nice bar mitzvah at bar mitzvah. He didn't follow through with his promise. I guess some things are constants. So the father just didn't follow through with that. <laughs> at some point later, he disappeared. You know, and this was unfortunately common in Europe. People would get waylaid by robbers and murderers. And when you read the Chuvas firm of, of, of all those years, this is a constant story. Your son disappeared. Half year later, they heard two people speaking in a bar about how he killed this Jew and he took his money. And, and this was always an issue with Aguna, if you can believe it or not. And, and he said, so this person disappeared. The, I guess the testimony of what happened to him wasn't either good or they didn't have anything. Their question was, had this marriage been consummated? Had the fact that he promised to make a nice bar mitzvah and didn't make him one constitute a mekachtos? There were a lot of halachic issues with 
with with that. Now, there's nothing there. This is a tshuva written. There's nothing there that sounded as if it was unusual, improper, or strange to marry people at a young age. My guess is people matured at a much quicker age. A three is a, is, 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 is a halachic category of physical change in the body. I don't think, you don't find in later times any, anybody getting married at that age. But, but I, I do, it, it is hard to extrapolate from our sense of what is childhood. Childhood, unfortunately, childhood ended very, very early in those years. A kid six, seven, eight might be expected to earn his own living. Um, my, you know, my own parents were survivors. They grew up in Europe. They were older people, and know from them that a kid eight was expected to work all day and to earn his keep. It was very, very rough. A piece of bread cost. So, if you, if you're working full time, there is a maturity that that you know our maturity has moved <coughs> a lot into the later ages. The fact that people's lives were like people would die in the forties. It, it's, so there definitely was a, a very big shift, and 12 doesn't seem at all a stretch for people to be mature enough to get married. Three is just a physical reality. Um, my assumption is that, what, that people got married at whatever age they were mature to get married. Now, I, I want to, so a general sense is when we approach all of these ages, understanding that what we see today as being norm and earlier is not um, is 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 not comparable. But even let's go back to something like three year old and even something like rape and so on, people make a mistake about the laws, the halacha system. The halacha system has um, many areas of lacuna that we would be surprised at. For instance, real rape is not punishable. It's only payable when she's a psula and so on. Do, do, do you, try, you try to translate all these words would be great. Okay, which Lacuna. one? Lacuna first. <laughs> 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 that means, <laughs> that means so. it's a gap in, in the law. <laughs> Things that are, that, the, the, there are a lot of instances, and I, I actually want to write about this at some point. Um, it, the, 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 there's a famous Shuvah Sarajba, Shuvah a lot of response. Uh, the laws that we have are, um, what's the right word for it? It's a framework where we can express certain divine attributes of judging fellow men. There is law and order which is separate and necessary. A king was in charge of mishpat and keeping the country running safely, effectively, and he would impose many laws that the Torah doesn't impose as a way of you know, protecting people, keeping a country running and functioning. When people try to, uh, uh, I I think it's a very, very big, it's a lot of ignorance when you try to equate Torah laws. Torah laws is not meant to fill in all the areas of civil law. Just like civil law would not punish a person for eating pork, that's his business and it's religious law, um, they would would establish many, many laws that that would be comparable to our laws. But that was what's called the king's laws. In other words, this has to do with maintaining a safe uh, 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 um, public forum and protecting people, uh, uh, effective markets. These all were called takanos. They were mishramel. And the Rajba writes this in a tshuva somewhere. The Rajba in a response, uh, the Rajba was uh, 1300s. And he writes that if you were to follow the way it says in the Torah, we'd be open 
for, for, for terrible um, lawlessness. There is mishpat which is to keep what we would call law and order. The American it's civil law, civil law, doesn't pretend to impose values. Its, its job is to keep society running as effectively and as efficiently as, as possible, ensuring every person has his rights and his and ability to function well. That exists. That's not the Torah. That's, that's the king's jurisdiction. It's to run a civil country. The Torah adds something to it, that I can sit in judgment on him for eating something that he shouldn't eat. That's imitating God. And, you know, you're right. Why, I shouldn't be judging another person. But the Torah said, in these instances, I can and should judge. So in most areas of, of, of halacha, of law, that's the way it works. In civil law, such as um, the, all the laws that deal with f- financial stuff, it also, a lot of it depends on the introduction of social civil law to determine many takanos. You know, they would they would make many many type of types of law similar to ours, commercial law. The the the, the halachic um, commercial law is not really commercial law. It's a law had to deal with offenses in in that area. It, it, it's it's a certain framework that's valid for what it is. It's not meant to be exhaustive. It's meant to be total. There's much proof for that. So my answer would be. Uh, the Torah law covers one part of 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 uh, society and its its norms, its mores, its values. It's meant by the Torah to be augmented by a large body of civil law, civil in the sense of things that we feel are appropriate to have for the community to function well. I mean, let's take another example. You can't punish by Torah law without two witnesses warning a person before. My gosh, very, very few people that commit crimes bother to have somebody to have two people warn them before. That doesn't seem to be the normal custom today. And, and the answer is, yes, society will impose a civil structure to, to, to do what needs to be done so that people emerge each other, but the fact that we can go and kill a human being and, and impose almost a god-like punishment, a, 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 a Benson sits as god on another human being. It's it's appropriate for society to have it's it's one way we imitate God. It's appropriate the person who gets punished that way also gets Olam Haba because he's gotten his punishment in this world. But it's a very small segment of what we would look upon as as law of Bismanazir. Yes. so much is spoken about regarding how much we should control our anger as it is depicted to be a loss of control and extremely negative. Given that Hashem is atovu meiti, Allah has been perfect, what does it mean that for Hashem to get angry, and how can we relate to this in a healthy way? Um, so the Ramam does actually say, anger, like everything else, anger comes, we tend to blur um, a certain expression when we use the word anger and kas. Let's give an example. Let's say a child is playing with matches. Let's say a child is, is, is going to the street and so on. And somebody is laughing at it. You would say that that's very bad. You would ex- you, just like, you know, when they have this thing on bottles that have poison and stuff like that, you have these nasty faces that scares kids off. If for a kid, it's really 
the design on the on the bottle that makes the difference of whether it's you know appealing or, or not. You, the biggest the, the 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 message to a young child is through expression, a look on the face, a, a, a change in the voice. Many many of of uh, that's more to him than the content of the word. It's not what you said. A child many times doesn't understand it. Doesn't so much give regard to that. It's how you said it, and everything about your body language and so on. So when anger is a way of expressing something, it is perfectly correct. So a stern warning to a child, and when you tell him, you know, you do this one more time, and I'll give you a big patch, and, and whatever it is, is the most appropriate thing to tell him when he's playing with matches or walking the street and so on. Anger in the sense of a loss of self-control, where you are going to say or do something that's really not productive. It's not helping the other person. <coughs> It's 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 um, you know it's it's really being counterproductive, and um, in a lot of times people. Somebody just showed me something he wrote from something, and I asked him, "What's the purpose?" I, I said this. I said, "Is the purpose to further your agenda or to vent?" If it's to further your agenda, I assure you, the person who's the target of this is not going to become your ally by it. That's wrong. And you know that. If it's to express your frustration, that's fine. But say to yourself, I'm sacrificing the cause just to express my frustration. And, you know, I want to tell you a story about what self-control means and, and how it's used in Chinuch. It's an extraordinary story. I'll tell you where I got it from. Um, there was a mashkir in Chavim Yeshiva called the Meir Chodesh. His son, Yibar Hachir Meir Yeshiva, Baron Chodesh. Reb Meir Chodesh himself was a... Um, was a... Talmud of the Altus Labatka, who was considered to be the world's great, I guess, pedagogue. He died in, in the 20s. Um, he's buried in Hebron. Hebron Yeshiva he made. He made many Yeshivas, made many big people. He was an extraordinary figure in his own right. And Rameh Chodesh was one of his big Talmudim. The, they wrote a book about him after he passed away. It was written by his daughter, actually. There's for a line for the feminist, in case you have a question about women's role in Judaism. One good role is to write books about their fathers. That's an amazingly important thing. <laughs> and the stories there are very good stories. She really chose them well. And, she, and you know, they're, all, they're all with people who said them. They're very good. And a person s- tells the following incident. He was a young boy in yeshiva. And um, he was, one Friday night, he was 17, 18 years old. And he was, you know, on the wild side, and a bit uh, impulsive. He was sitting and eating garinim. I'm sure you all know what garinim are. You know, it's an American school, but, you know, it's the, it's the poppy seed, the, the um, sunflower. sunflower seeds that eat. And Friday night, he ate it, and he's sitting, and there's this big stack of seeds. You know, that's the, the collateral damage of eating those seeds, is that you end up with a pie like this. And it decided that the most appropriate place to put those seashells is in the shtender of the mashkir of Rameh Chodesh. So he took the whole pile and put it into that shtender. I don't know what it's symbol, whatever it was, <laughs> it, 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 it could be seen as not being a positive message. The next day, Rameh Chodesh sees it, cleans out the shtender, nothing throws out, and that's the end of it. Seven years later, this boy became engaged. He became a very chashvat hamchacham in the meanwhile. In those days, people got engaged, married, 24, 25. That was quite normal in Hebron. And seven years later, he became a chassan. He was very chashvat uh, um, And he went over to Ebnea to get his mazel tov and say, you know, I, I became a chassan, got a mazel tov. He said, oh, mazel tov, I'm so happy. He says, by the way, I think now, he says, would be the appropriate time to apologize for having stuffed all those shells seven years ago into my shtender. And the person was taken aback 
and he, you know, he didn't know, it was also worse, he says, like, why now? He said, had I told you seven years ago, it would have started a whole spat. You would have gotten upset at me, I would have gotten upset at you, and I don't know where you would have ended up with it. It wasn't a time when you could have dealt with it maturely. Now, you need to patch this up also and get this out of the way bring closure to it. I need the apology for it and, and that's it that's Chinuch in other words he knew the score right away and, and I, I'm sure it wasn't DNA testing I'm sure he, he, he just had a feel for who was the person that would put the guy in him there I'm sure he recognized I'm sure it's not a terribly positive feeling when you're the Mashkir the Yeshiva and some little kid basically dumps the guy in him but his mind only worked. What am I supposed to do with it? What am I supposed to, you know, when am I supposed to have? And he decided, you know, this is not the right stage. And at some point, he decided this is the right stage. And this is a time when he can, when, when he should apologize for it. There's an amazing story about that's cas when it's positive. It means it's a message. And we, we get a message through interaction. A loud voice, an annoyed voice, gestures, looks, and cast that's bad is anger. Anger, anger that's sorry. Thank you. Anger that's bad is when you lose control, which for us tends to be almost synonymous with anger. But when you talk about angry expression, the Rambam says this very clearly: that a person is supposed to use anger as an expression not as a, a state of being or state of mind. Yeah. Uh, after the sin of the golden calf, Hashem tells Moshe in Harsha's Kitisa that he is going to analyze and annihilate the nation, the nation of Israel. There, there were three million Jews in the desert, and only 3,000 actually participated in the sin of the golden calf. How and why could Hashem be so willing to destroy his entire nation based on the sin of only 3,000 people, especially considering the fact that in Parshira, Hashem was willing to save the whole city of stone based on the merits of even just 10 righteous people. Okay, somebody's building a lot of Chumash. He knows Bayer and he knows Kisisa together, so that, that's a really... Uh, a little bit of knowledge is very dangerous. What? <laughs> well, he's about, with his knowledge, about to save Kalisal with his knowledge. <laughs> So, l- 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 let me give two, two answers, really, to address two separate points of this. Um, the saving the city, um, l- let's give an example. L- let's, l- let's give an example. Imagine you're about to marry somebody. Scene one, you're about to marry somebody. Oh, let's go guilty. There's somebody that's in a school or some sort of working for you, and the person has issues that you'd like to get rid of him. And someone comes along and says, listen, I know he's late, I know he, he's sloppy with this, but he's got this positive aspect and this and this and this. That's scene one. And you say, you know what? Yes, he's got these positive things. I think I will um, I'll keep him. You know, I know he, he's got his drawbacks, but they're, they're, they're redeeming values. Imagine somebody is dating a woman to get married, and it just, there's, you know, a lot of issues. And I come along and say, yeah, but she has redeeming... You don't marry somebody based on redeeming values. You, you know, it's a different relationship. Uh, somebody you marry, everyone has drawbacks, but you want to feel overwhelmed by the positive. And you're willing to live with some more minor drawbacks, let's call it. Whereas somebody that 
you, you don't have that relationship with, as long as it's, it's passable, it's okay. Kashbrok had no relationship with stone. He, he, these were people that were not his people. They were the antithesis of, 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 of what he wanted. So all, Kaddish, sorry, Kaddish, so all you needed to find some redeeming value there and say, okay, it's worth holding on to them for these people so that they develop. Kalisol was a Kashbrok's nation. That's our, uh, that's our right of existence, and that's our only mode of existence. To, to say that we have redeeming value is not enough. It's, it's got to be uh, 100% positive in, in, in a sort of major sense. So point one is a distinction between allowing someone to survive or allowing someone to be your people. And Kleisel can't survive. They're either God's people or, or they don't exist. Secondly, when a society, for instance, let's say when we look at Germany and Nazis, we, we, we say, well, the Nazis were only X percentage of people, but we see this a society that allowed this to grow, that this arose from their midst, that no one shouted them down, that no one protested, and so on and so forth. There must be a lot of blame to the society as a whole. So, um, Kleisel had 3,000 people that a, 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 a month after Matan Torah, we're ready to find some sort of compromise of Odazara and sort of let go of a lot of their faith. It didn't grow in a vacuum, and no one, I mean, one person protested and was killed, but everyone else seemed to go along with it, certainly passively and maybe even actively were, were happy about it. And therefore, um, you, 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 the 3,000 people were the active people, but everyone else was was um, was at least passively okay with it, and they grew they grew from some society. So maybe other people hadn't expressed it as strongly as they did. But there were there were there were there were obviously problems that were inherent in cholesterol that this was simply a, a manifestation of it. Yes. Uh, what do you think the particular tikkun of our generation is? <laughs> I'd be Macubla if I ever figure that out, but. Uh, uh, is there any money? <laughs> <laughs> now you're talking. <laughs> um, you know what? I, I don't know why we just don't follow a Torah mitzvah. In other words, we have... When people... The, the problem of looking for tikkun is um, that we sort of always look in the most exotic places. Um, find it. I think some that you mentioned before. Um, what are the major What are the major issues we have in our generation? Um, the, the, the 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 inundation with so much material wealth, information, the 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 lack of being able to sit back and to think quietly. The 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 the, the interconnection with society means we are so affected by everything society does. And 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 uh, it, it's almost impossible to become an amanivdal in the sense of being a separate nation, a, a nation that's unto itself. A lot. I mean, I would simply feel that's our greatest challenge. The tikkun is where our challenge lies, and I think that's a very strong challenge. The interconnectivity also does not allow. <coughs> For, um, for for bringing out ourselves in it. Um, so to look for tikkun in exotic places is, is strange. I would say, let's take a look. What's our great challenge today? 
and definitely seems to be the global village carries in itself the challenges. I think that we... Two interconnecting, perhaps interconnecting questions. How do we understand the Jewish experience in the United States in the context of the Roman exile? And what is the essence of the Roman exile more generally? How do we see it being expressed today? Has its expression changed over the last few thousand years? If so, why? Okay. That's a pretty big question. It's hard for me to say something very, very... Because when you're talking about the Roman exile, you're talking about 2,000 years' worth of history, and is it Christianity? Is it Western civilization? Which really, in some ways, obviously started with Greece, and then Rome found this more palpable expression in Rome, and it's changed in tremendous ways. So it'd really be... I mean, you could say many things, and the question is, what's hitting the nail on the head? Because so much has happened in 2,000 years, and what has really changed? And also Rome. Rome had different eras. It's not that Rome is... You can't say in one breath, I don't know, centuries or more of history. What are we talking about? So in sweeping ways, we would talk about the rise of the concept of a political nation as opposed to a people with a king, sort of. You know, Rome was very into being an empire, and sort of... Again, these things tend to be very sweeping, and, for instance, I mean, the countries, whether it was Persia or was Alexander, they also tried to be an empire. But somehow Rome seemed to erase more the character of each nation and just sort of melded together religions. Things seemed to be less and less important as individual entities and just homogenized. I guess that's a certain sense that we have as Americans, Westerners, it's all to the country as first, as if the country had some sort of soul to it, where it's hard to find that type of soul. When you had a people, a very specific people with a specific religion, it was more easy to pinpoint a soul. To us, I think, as Americans, it's very difficult to picture a people as being special, religion as being a focus of life and being the focus of a people. It's very difficult for us, even for people that are religious, to envision a state that's religious. It goes against the grain of what a state is. I think a lot of those ideas are ideas that we struggle with. I guess if I were to try to give a large picture, I don't know if you'd probably do better, Jonathan. If I needed to pick at things that I would... Let's look at ourselves. What do we find most difficult to deal with? Even as religious Jews, even people who grew up religious, the idea that a people is an entity, we tend to be very upset about that. Civil government includes in itself the idea that anyone who pledges allegiance and is giving his part to the state is part of the people. There's no such thing as no Franks and no Visigoths and there's no... It's each 
each group is its, is itself. Each each nation is is is, is anyone who pleads who, who who pleads allegiance and follows the laws and contributes to society is a good member of society. Um, the idea of equality being again it's positive. I don't I don't mean I'm glad that we live in a country at those in the states who consider states the country that that you have the opportunities. It's it's not as if I'm dying to go back to the czar or to anything like that. Um, you know it's it's but. It's the effect that it takes is it becomes difficult for us to see ourselves as unique. It, I mean, sometimes we're deeply torn between the idea that everyone is as good as everyone else, and I want you to stay Jewish and be Orthodox Jewish. The fact that we can't eat with other people, kosher keeps us separate, and that's something that we very get annoyed at. I can't, I can't be American. American. There was somebody. It, it, it's fascinating how this idea. I, I was once reading there was a um, there was a Slabotka Yeshiva Bacha, someone who learned the Slabotka Yeshiva, which was one of the premier yeshivas in Europe. Um, he left at a young age, I think he was under twenty, came to America and became a very famous professor of philosophy, Wolfson. And he was in Harvard. And he rejected his Yiddish guy totally, except he said that the um, the Talmudic study sharpened his intelligence tremendously. That's the only thing that he really still felt allegiance to, but religious-wise, he dropped it all. And um, he writes that there are some people that refuse to take important exams in, in, an, in, in, a, in a premier university in America because it conflicts with their holy day. He meant people who have to take exams on Yom Kippur in Harvard. And he says, legally and technically, we allow them to, to excuse themselves, but he feels morally it's wrong. You shouldn't be imposing your personal holiday on something as sacred as Harvard's uh, exams. This is a national importance, and so on. Um, it seems to us quite stunning because you know <laughs> we're sort of turning the loop with allowing each minority to recognize itself. But there was the attitude. It was this is very parochial. And this is very Catholic. This is kind of this is um, this is a small segment, and it's nice. In my house, I'm I'm a, I'm a member of the Jewish people, but America is is overwhelms everything. It's it's sort of a universal value for everyone, and Harvard is America embodied. I'm sorry, maybe Yale also. We'll, I don't want to in deference to our guest. We'll let Yale be a, like uh, also, and 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 the exam given on it. Is, is the Kodesh Kadoshim, it's the Holy of Holies. But, but this was an attitude that, it's, it's amazing, I, I, I read it over three or four times to really believe I could, I don't have a person, I don't have a problem if the person would have said it's all nonsense and forget about it. So, so I understand that type of rejection. But, this, but the, re, the, 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 the pyramid of values was fascinating to me. It, it, you know, it's, it, it was hard for me to, 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 to understand it, but, but that existed. And for us, we grew up in the States with very strong, positive feelings. I mean, my mother grew up in Poland. There are no positive feelings towards Poland. I assure you, there's nothing about Poland that she looks fondly back on. Um, my father's kind of Lithuania. I think a little bit, he had a little bit better feelings, but certainly no positive feelings. We grew up in the States, and, and there's a feeling that it, it's very, very... Um, being extremely parochial by, by becoming so separate and you know it, it, you're imposing your kosher food on a whole group of people and an important corporation and so on and I think that's something that we struggle with that, that's a, a very big struggle yeah 
I'd just like to warn you on the next. The, the student put a lot of thought into it, so. Okay. Maybe, I'm sorry, we have one. Okay. Eurydice Adoros, uh, what exactly is included in this concept? Is it exclusively Torah learning? But in terms of character, there is evidence that people haven't changed much. For example, in Sanhedrin 27a, uh, comes out of Zion Aleph. Rashi says the people who eat Nevela for enjoyment are invalid as witnesses because the meat is cheaper, i.e., they were easily influenced by money. The same goes for lusting after women. I guess he knows that. The uh, truth is that the mitzvahs and halakhas are in place specifically because the Torah recognizes human weaknesses, and these truths are eternal. How can orthodoxy stress so emphatically that we are a weak generation when every generation has its own weaknesses and pitfalls? and how they are always predicted and constrained by the Torah. To preempt a possible response, <laughs> technology might influence our generation, but that, that's as true today as it was in the days of the printing press. Every age brings technology, uh, 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 it's solely is, is it solely a Eurydice innovation and carries with it certain pitfalls. If, if the result of technology in our surroundings is tied, or is there something intrinsic to the human soul that supposedly causes us to become weaker? If that, if, in Urias and Doris, if that's the case, what's your proof? Okay. Um, so I, I do think there's a. It's overused. The word Urias and Doris is overused to the point of, you know, it's, it's always. Um, it, it, every every problem is blamed by Yeridus Adoros, and, and nothing is possible to do good because Yeridus Adoros. And it's one of those phrases. I mean, the Gemara says Mishonik Malachim on the Adam, and so on. If the, if the original generation, sorry, sorry. Are like <laughs> angels, we are like human beings. If, we, if they are like human beings, we are like donkeys, and not even the donkey of Pentos Benyai. So let's explain what the context of that is, and let's explain why. In, in, in which area is it? In the only area in which it's correct. Um, there is no a priori um, declaration that we're going to be bad or worse or, or anything like that. And, and it has, in many ways, our generation is, is by far better than the previous generation. Um, in Europe, in, in, in the, certainly between the wars, um, things are going downhill rapidly from a religious point of view. Even before that, from the mid-1800s, I mean, Germany was reformed, period. Uh, there was yes, there was Hurst, there was this, that. You're talking about a few hundred families in a sea of thousands of families. Um, it, it, there, were, there, there has been many, many... It, 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 the generations have gone up and down, and there have been different generations of, of remarkable achievements. But what it means is, because something of the essence of Talmud Torah, or not Talmud Torah, I should say, something of the essence of understanding Torah the way it ought to be depends on a certain immediacy. In other words, if I knew somebody well, then I really got him. If I tell over the stories to somebody else, he's by definition going to have it a little bit less than me. If, if, um, if he tells it over to the next person, it's, it's going to, just in the transition, there's always a loss. Like, like in anything physical, when you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you move electricity from one entity to another entity, there's a loss. You move power, you move energy, you move anything. That's the nature of it. That is, so there might be generations that perform better than other generations, but in the, cert, in the sense of having a feel for Torah, and that's why we take a back seat 
to the early, let's say, Rambam. And the people in those generations are called Rishonim. These are people who lived up to about, depending on 1400, 1500, depending um, how you calculate what, what we consider Rishonim. In Halacha, they command a very special place. And the sense is that they had a better intuitive feel for what it is that the Halacha meant. It doesn't mean that occasionally we don't override by using many proofs, but there's a general sense that as things move from generation to generation, there's going to be a loss of, of the clear feel of what it is. And that's why we tend to um, look, we, we tend to say our generations are weaker. And, and you know, I, I grew up in generations of people who are from the old generation. Maybe some of you consider me the old generation, but I, I, I go back, I mean, my, my father was born the early 1900s, 1900-something, and his, his stories took me back to the mid-1800s. And there were many areas where I think my generation was further ahead, but in, in the terms of a certain deeper emotional connection, the, my, my father and his generation, the people of that, of, of, of that generation who were observant, had a depth, a certain connection that we fall far short. Um, and, and I see it. It, it, it. There was just a sense of that. They had it in a way that was more, I don't know if passion is the right word fit, but it, it was much more integrated in them. Even people who were less observant had strong feelings in ways that we we would have a hard time today uh, uh, expressing it. So, so, so there's a, there was a particular quality, and I would say the quality is it's the closeness to the starting point that it keeps going down from generation to generation. That's Eurizadors. On the other hand, and let's and let's what's what is also written is that each generation. Um, adds to the final tikkun as you're speaking about. So we've definitely, each generation has added its piece to it. And even though we don't see it in front of us, but it's much closer to the gula. And that means more has been taken care of. So in some ways we have more already done, whether or not we realize it. But on a personal level, we're missing a lot more because we're so distant from it. I think a good marshal for that would be like for the thing we've done. It's like you know when somebody's putting a Rubik's cube. I see kids now; it's popular again, playing with it. Um, you know, when you first start, I mean, you're real novice. You try to put all the colors in one place and that, but it's not the way it works. And sometimes it doesn't look at all like it's going to click into place. But you're three clicks away from having it all in place. We are three clicks away. We are a few clicks away, and it doesn't look much closer. But we believe that each generation had its issues. It's challenges. It failed in some regards, but there was something that went on. And let, let's give an example. The Haskalah movement it, it devastated Kali Yisrael. The Haskalah movement was the movement of enlightenment, which <coughs> started in the... It, it followed closely to the... I mean, the secular in the 1700s, as reason began to take the place of authority and religion, and the Jews, the, the Jews had more and more rights, and they were able to study in the universities. It swept Europe, and most people became, from the late 1800s onwards, um, they became um, totally unobservant because science, quote unquote, and philosophy, quote unquote, proved that Yiddishkeit is nonsense. And you, you could, there was no such thing as somebody going to university and being an observant Jew. It didn't exist in, in Europe. 
Um, and it, it, it was like a plague that, that sort of destroyed the, the, the yeshivas and everything. But once we began to think a second time and realize that it's not at all true, we became much stronger because of it. The fact today that we can, we can be scientists and engage in, 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 in much of the world's um, knowledge and, and, um, and everything about it and, and, and not be phased by it, one thing. So it's like when you go through a plague and a disease and then you come out stronger because you pass through it. Uh, the same thing, Zionism, once upon a time, was a totally secular movement, almost. It was sort of, um, well, we do it. And, and for a long time, people that were Zionists dropped bits and pieces of the Judaism. Today, Israel and Zionism has become a force to bring people back, in, in, you know, in the right way and so on. So I, I think his, the history is we were devastated by something, we, 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 we regrouped, and we're stronger because we passed through the difficulties, and, and now we have the tools for dealing with it. There were so many movements. Karaite movement was a very powerful movement. And, and again, all these movements are forgotten because we've gotten over them, and they've formed to history, and we have the benefit of having uh, struggled with it and, and vanquished it. Yes? Oh, you'll, you'll tell me when to stop. Uh, 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 what does it mean to have a relationship with God? It's a G here, but I assume that's... <laughs> <laughs> um... Let, let, me, let, let me give, let, let's take the Rambam's definition, because I think that that's the, the, the one that we can um, understand the best. He speaks about Avas Hashem, the love of God. What does it mean to love God? Um, because other people speak about, um, about gratitude to God as arousing love. There are plenty of people that I'm grateful to, but I can't say I love them. If, I, if somebody's been through a difficult heart operation, he's extremely grateful to his cardiologist, but the word loving his cardiologist not, not, doesn't, doesn't sound interchangeable at all. Um, there are people who are grateful for a fireman rescue somebody, a policeman. We're extraordinarily great, grateful, and we do a lot for him, but the word love is not there. The Rambam says, love means someone or it's emotion with the closeness to that person or entity brings pleasure to me. Being close brings pleasure to me. Since the only way the Rambam says we can be close to God is through our minds, which is studying Torah, thinking, contemplating, the definition of Avas Hashem would be when the contemplation and thought of God or Torah evokes in us a very strong sense of pleasure. That's what Ave is. That's how he defines it, Sefer Mitzvah. Pretty much, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I think it's pretty much what he means. And therefore, when a person understands in himself divine, when a person is able to feel the self-discipline, spirituality, um, understanding, all these areas of self, that, and understanding that the, 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 the development of that is because he's moving direction of God, then he has a sense of intense positive emotion of, of that closeness. That's really, um, th that's the Rambam's way of expressing it. One could also try, and, and the problem is, it, it gets difficult when you try to posit it in terms of 
love like a you know friend to friend, a father to child. Like if I see God as special, looks out for me, it means He cares for me. <coughs> but w- w- we'd be hard put. God doesn't have emotions where we understand it. But knowledge and understanding, chachmadas, is shared. It's the only file that's shared with God is chachma. It might, his his way of knowing is different, but there's a sharing over there. And that's why the Rambam is so intense on on studying understa- and understanding with a capital U to be the, the the realm of interaction with God, because that's really the only area that we can actually engage, so to speak. So so it's. When a person feels that his spiritual self, his spiritual life, is what gives him intense pleasure, and the understanding that that's a God's interacting with God, that's 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 how I would say the Rambam defined that relationship. And halachah for the rocha, what? what? And halachah for the rocha, what role does that play? Translation. Halachah. <laughs> <laughs> that's halachah for the Acting in accordance with the way we understand that God interacts with the world in a positive way, using His positive, His positive mitos imitating them. So, so, so let's talk about this also. Because this is also very important. The Rambam, the, the Rambam's what we call mitos, um, which is things like anger and love and and modesty and haughtiness. <coughs> the Rambam calls them deos, deos doesn't have an easy translation attitudes would probably be closest I think it would be more my basic reaction to something my basic take on something not in some sort of abstract mental way but just like anger anger is a basic take on something so I park in my space anger is a take on, on something I, I feel, you know, I accomplish something that people look up to. I, I feel haughty, arrogant. These are sort of basic instinctive reactions. And the Rambam says the, the, the description of, of the mitzvah, of dealing with it, is to imitate the pattern of God's interaction with the world. And it's a very deep mitzvah in the Rambam because in a certain sense it brings us closer to God. Now let's explain, this was the question he asked, let's explain what that means. When I'm close to a person, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean physically close to a person, it means I'm sitting next to him. There's nothing, that, that's certainly not close. If I, if I have somebody where we quote-unquote think alike, we have a very common way of understanding things um, understa- and therefore understand each other extremely well. That tends to be where we see a certain closeness. There's a term in Hebrew, it's called kirvas hadas. It's one of the things when people um, are dating seriously, th- the point that tends to become like the focal point that, that sort of is, tends to be sort of the, the, the deal maker is, you know, it's, it's amazing how, how we think alike. It's amazing how we understand things the exact same way and, and we act to things and so on. People find that to be sort of th- that final phase of, of, of making a decision. So I can't do it. I can do it by learning. I can also by imitating how Hashem reacts to, to things. How Hashem reacts to things, the Torah says, He tends to, when somebody's in need, he, he gives, 
and that's called to walk in his ways to, to find the ways that God interacts and to imitate that and as we imitate that, that becomes our own natural reaction, so somebody comes and tells me I'm, I'm hungry, so um, I can react, my instinctive reaction be, not my problem buddy or my instinctive reaction be, that's why they have uh, family services or um, my reaction could be, here, take something, please. I, you know, no, no further words. Here, here's bread and butter, you know, whatever it is. That's a, it's an instinctive way of reacting that really defines how I see things, how I perceive things. How I, and, and the Rambam calls that the imitation. That imitation of God is, molds me to be of his nature, so to speak, and therefore it's closest to God. So it's complementary to what we're saying. Um, it's, it's, it's knowledge and understanding, but more of a... Um, it's more of an, an intuitive way of, about things. It's an attitude to things rather than some abstract understanding of things. They complement each other. When you learn, you develop um, sort of a, a, a pattern of looking at things a certain way. When you act it out, you develop a, a more instinctive way of looking at it. But it's the same. If I learn about chesed, read about chesed, that's helpful in one way. I understand it's about giving and so on and so forth. And when I learn to give and, and to sort of give, that that also is, is, is part of it. We do six or two. Do you have time for one more or no? Me? Yeah. Um, one more? What are you damayev now or not? What do you do? What's the norm? What's the norm? We could. No, no, no. I don't. I don't. What do you do normally? Don't, don't. Uh, <laughs> no, don't don't really do it. What? Everyone's here. We have a very short bit of sleep. So normally I go for a walk with Buckley, but what? Normally I go for a walk. Oh yes. What? What's to a kashpachot? Yes, it's the flip side of it. Yeah. Yes. One more. Somewhat speculative. What on a metaphysical level might be driving the possible collapse of the liberal world order? You know, let's talk about this. I, I, do, I want to talk about it. It's not because um, I know that we have some very conservative. Let me start with an anecdote. And I was on a plane uh, I learned from Jonathan that planes can actually give you a lot of material so I was on a plane flight coming to Israel I used to travel every month because for six years I, I took the job where I am now in Silver Spring I, it was very difficult to move the family and for six years I was trying to make up my mind so <laughs> I had plenty of time on the plane to make up my mind and I go back and forth and, and so I was sitting Together with a group, what? You decided you didn't like flying every month. What? You decided. You <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the contemplation of six years worth of flying. Was that, that I don't like this. I, I would the smell of of the airplane would, would would make me sick as soon as I would get close to it. Um, but I was once together with a group of Christians. This was a Christian sect. It was called Bruderhof, which means a. Um, Hof means a courtyard. It was a brotherly type of group, similar to Quakers, I guess. They were dressed like that. They were dressed like very sort of old-fashioned. I saw pictures, the girls with pig, 
pigtails and you know very sneeristic dress. You know, they, they looked at they, somewhat Quaker Amish, that type of Germans. They were persecuted by the Nazis. They ran away during the war to Argentina, and they settled in upstate New York. And the head of the group, the the Reverend, was there with with his family, and there was a, like a contingent. And he sat next to me. Very kind of very simple people, very nice people, um, very sincere people. And we're schmoozing. It's a long trip here, and we're schmoozing. And I asked him, what brings you to Israel? And he told me something fascinating. This was in the 90s. I moved in 2001, so somewhere in the 90s. He said the Israeli kibbutz movement had been um, disintegrating. People were wanted money, and in kibbutz there's no money to be had, and people wanted to strike out privately, and the kibbutz movement was disintegrating. So they brought in people from all over the world who had kibbutz-like um, movements, communities, you know, communal uh, societies, to try to ask them how they're continuing and to learn from them. That was it was sort of a, a, a mission. So um, so they brought in his father. And now this was like a second. They brought him in for like a series of whatever it was. And he told me that they asked that his father asked them, um, "What do you believe in?" And they told him, "We actually don't believe in any deity. We don't believe in any god." And he said to them, "If you don't have a common father, what makes you brothers?" That was his statement. And I said to him, "I am embarrassed." that I'm hearing something that my brother hears something so true from you. I told him, you know, that statement is extraordinarily powerful. In other words, the the liberal humanistic view is positive in its expression. But if you empty out the core, if we're all accidents of nature, so our value is not more than an accident of nature. What's the tragedy if the world disintegrates? It came by accident, and it leaves by accident. What's the problem? It, it, what's, what, why is it so important? I could have two rolls of butter, and he would starve to death, or I could have one roll, he could have one roll. So some people enjoy giving him a roll. I'm, I'm okay with that. I happen not to. I like, I like, I like having two rolls, and it's his problem. The the last 200 years has given us a, a, um, has presented a position that it's possible to be good and kind in a fundamental way without believing in a core belief of morality, God, and anything like that. But it's disintegrating for that reason. It's something which, by definition, People can be good and can be nice kind because they're instinctive that way. But if you think about it, if you don't have a basis for it, then 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 at some point it's not going to last. Um, you know, and, and and I think it's sort of. I once heard this from a Shapiro, and the truth is, the Rishonim say this. It says by um, the 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 uh, Dora Flogger that everybody came together and they were trying to build this tower and God came down and he dashed it. And the way he expressed it, and again, some of the Shonim say something very similar. You can't have achtos without echot. If, if there's no one point that everything emanates from, 
then things are different. I can have a federation, I can have an association. I can't have unity if, if we're not one really. I can have a neighborhood association, which is fine. We all want the garbage picked up on, on Monday, so let's get together, petition the, the, the this and that. But, but if there's nothing more than that, then it's going to be an, a common interest. It, it does appeal to us a world that's peaceful, a world that people care about each other, and so on. <coughs> it doesn't mean that people that are atheists can't be caring people, but it's not going to list you, in a fundamental way. You, at some point, you say to yourself, well, why should I suffer so much for the other person's benefit? Yes, so the answer is evolution has programmed me to give him the extra role because it's more beneficial if our genes get spread out and there's more chance of, of people. Now that I'm smart enough and know that my genes programmed me, I want to reprogram my genes. I don't want to lose my brother, brother and role. So I will, I can, now that I've not been programmed by some, 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 some gene that, that, that was favored, so I can unprogram myself. I can treat genetic defects. Charity is a genetic defect. It takes away from me and gives him. That's, that's as defective as he can get. I, I will, I will undefect myself and I will have, I will enjoy life to its fullest. And let him take care of himself. I'm sorry, buddy. I, I, I don't mean that. You're, 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 you're just the right place. <laughs> and, and, and it's only when I realize, hey, you are a chelikolkai, and you're realizing yourself only by, by being godlike. If, I, if I'm not a giving person, if I'm just, if I'm just a person who takes... That's that's me. Is it's, it's it's like an animal, and as myself is denied. It's something that it it for it to become lasting, for it to become something that will be permanent. It's only possible if it's built on on, on something that this is the core of it. And and I think that that this is what we're going through. It's something the ideas, the positive ideas that have come to light in the last century and two, that life is much much nicer in a certain way. Came with a commensurate loss of of um, emuna, and I think that that will be its undoing, because it can't last. So, so charity and goodness and caring of other people um, must be based on a sense that this is to the core what I should be, what I ought to be. If if the answer is I happen to be altruistic because I've been programmed that way, that that that, that means. Altruism is no better than something else. Some people are programmed to have blue eyes, some people are programmed to have brown eyes. You can't say some people are programmed to be giving, some people are programmed not to be giving. It, it, there has to be something that I can, that I can make it um, real, that I can say this is goodness, this is truth, and I'm either part of it or, or my existence is, is, is uh, that I exist only as an animal, not as a person. That's, I, I believe that that's where it'll go to. I mean, again, I, I know it's, it's not something I, you know, it's putting us on <laughs> predictions, but if you ask me, I think this would be a, a way of expressing it, of, of what's happening. I, I really enjoy coming here. It's, a, it's an extraordinary place. We've had many, many boys who've been here have ended up in Washington to pursue truth and justice and kindness and other virtuous things. There's a <laughs> it's, it's a wide open field for, for, for doing that. But uh, if, if anyone finds Washington area to be there is Baruch Hashem, a wonderful community there, wonderful communities, a lot of Torah, a lot of professionals, and um, if, if uh, you know, just, uh, there are quite a few, many, many people.
people from Honyaka that have found a place there. And uh, you're invited if, you, if this is the right place. You're invited personally if you need something or whatever it is. It's always a pleasure to be here. It's a very, very, um, it's a very engaging crowd and interested crowd. And, and even after Matthew's editing, you could still tell that there was uh, <laughs> some real uh, intellectual interest and curiosity. Batsloch, everybody. I would like my, I don't want to destroy your, 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 your,